We will be starting today's session with a conversation with Garrett Goldberg from B Partners. Garrett, welcome to the show. Good morning, Shamana. Thank you for having me, and uh, thank you all for being here. Unprecedented times we're in, for sure. Garrett, let's uh, get you acquainted with our community. Tell us a bit about your background as well as about B Partners. You bet. That's interesting. There's no one well-trodden path into venture capital. Uh, I personally started effectively at the bottom at, the, at an angel fund, at a regional angel fund, when a friend pitched me on her idea. And I said, I'm pretty sure that's how you lose $25,000 as you invest in all your friends' companies. Um, and so I started at the bottom just making angel investments through a group. And the group taught me how to, how to make the investments, how to diligence. I eventually became the screening committee chair for a regional angel group. Um, mm -hmm. And then my wife, uh, who also has gone to Stanford, moved us back here to San Francisco. And um, I met a guy who was an angel and effectively be partners as a manifestation of his and my angel investing activity. Yeah. We, we realized that at that early stage, at time zero for that first check, um, it was more than the 25 grand. It was support. Um, it was helping get from zero to one. And that's what we do with B partners. We really focus on that inception stage investing. And what, um, you and your partner, what kind of um, trajectory did you follow before coming to angel investing, just to get a sense of where your center of gravity is? Yeah, that's right. Um, this is my third career, I like to say. So I actually started in professional sports um, after college here in the Bay Area, and, and then went into real estate development. So I, that was probably going to happen anyway. Uh, my family had been involved, and so definitely a winding path. Um, and it was only through um, that that happenstance of a friend indicating, you know, she would want to take some money that that I got into venture. My partner was in private equity in New York, um, and he had made a couple angel investments himself, and one of them hit, and that's what enabled him to say, okay, I'm going to stop and form this firm um, and really go for it. And so we both okay. sort of came up par parallel lives, but different different ways. Now, what um, is the positioning of B Partners? Obviously, there's been a tremendous um, expansion of the seed capital uh, ecosystem. So many funds, so many micro VCs are operating now. What are the vital mm -hmm. statistics and the positioning of B Partners? Yes, Ramani, you got it. There really, in the last 10 years, has been this bifurcation of the seed world. So before, you just had and Series A, and then a group of angels before. And since maybe 2009, we've seen this atomization of the seed. You have pre-seed, seed, post-seed post almost. Um, so potential for an entrepreneur to take several rounds of capital or a couple rounds of capital before getting to that Series A milestone. Um, and so with that bifurcation, pre-seed investing has, has become a legitimate investable asset class. And so consistent with that productization of the angel world, Pre-seed investing is where B Partners fits. Effectively, we were doing it before it was called pre-seed. Um, I'm joking. I joke that my partner always wanted to call it Genesis Stage Investing, but um, perhaps mm -hmm. a little too biblical. And so, we're we're very focused on that early stage. Every company has that moment. Not every company reaches Series A or B, but every company has that that zero to one inception moment. And so, we effectively productize that. We're a team of four, where the third and fourth partners work primarily on the portfolio and on marketing for the portfolio, because that's what's needed. Um, we, we, we really think that that support at the early stage can make a huge difference. Once the company is on its way, it's a big moving shift and has a little bit of a, a momentum going, but 
creating that initial momentum, uh, creating fund? that first product. Uh, the fund, the current fund is $40 million, which is appropriately priced. Um, our, we're on our third fund right now. The first one was seven, which was Michael's a small angel fund of my partner. And then we raised 30 and then we raised a little over 40. So 40 to 50 million is the, is the right number. And what geography do you cover? North America. Um, we're here in San Francisco, but we're generally agnostic. Um, we do before in a previous life, we traveled quite a bit and have nodes all over the country, right? So Atlanta, Toronto, I heard there's a, a founder from Toronto here on, online today. So um, we're certainly agnostic, but it is important for us to be here. This is the center of gravity, at least for now, just in terms of processing, processing opportunities. And talk about sectors. Where do you like to invest? You bet. We're strictly enterprise focused. So B2B all the way. We talk about frontier tech. We talk about different verticals within the B2B. And so they can be healthcare. It can be logistics. It can be insurance. We're a little bit uh, more agnostic when it comes to the vertical. Now we have 65 investments. And so we have exposure to many, many different verticals. Internally, we have you an investment okay strategy. With, oh, you okay with deep tech, cybersecurity, and all of that? Not, cybersecurity is one that we avoid, um, but otherwise deep tech, yes, frontier technologies. I was about to say that we have an investment construct we call vector investing that cuts across all these verticals. So edge computing, um, human-computer interaction, there are these general themes that carry on over time and that we invest in specific verticals that leverage these different themes that we have. Okay, got it. Let's uh, do a few case studies Talk about, you know, two or three companies that you've invested in that you're particularly excited about and also that are particularly representative of what you like to invest in. And in each case, tell us when did they come to you, what did they have, and what was it about them that drew your attention enough to want to write checks? Yeah, this, this is a fun part, right? I get to talk about the founder. Um, a company called Iris Automation. They're, they build a drone sense and avoid technology. We had been invested in a company called Skycatch, which was a drone monitoring for construction site company. And so had been exploring drones. And really we were trying to explore if drones were a sector in their own. And we came to this conclusion that really drones aren't the sector, drones aren't the industry, it's construction or it's mining or it's oil and gas are the industries. And so Iris Automation came to us and said, we we see this future of drones in all these industries. In order mm -hmm. to enable that future, we have to build what's called sense and avoid or detect and avoid technology. Effectively an onboard ability for that drone to see where it's flying. We can program a yeah. drone to fly from here to Nevada, but it doesn't actually see anything along the way. And so as we enter the FAA airspace with drones, whether it's package delivery, pipeline inspection, oil rig, we have to adhere to what the FAA has long set up. And so the drone has to be able to take evasive maneuver. If an airplane enters its, enters its uh, field of vision or its flight path, or if a tree falls in front of it, or if um, a building has been built that wasn't mapped out, for example. And so this detect and avoid technology is effectively horizontal. It, can go, it, it goes onto the drone. And these are big fixed wing industrial drones to then service the customers that are doing the pipeline inspection, that are in other countries doing drone delivery, that are doing blood delivery. And so effectively a, an onboard insurance um, mm -hmm. program for these drones. So really interesting, deep tech in the enterprise, but then can touch all these verticals. And, and the founder had the machine vision background to be able to do this? 
Absolutely. Younger founders. So generally speaking in the enterprise, we, we, we don't, we're not biased. We just back uh, more experienced, older founders. I think a lot of them have gone into the industry, figured out what's missing and then left to go build the solution. In this case, it was young founders, really smart in the computer vision. We wrote them their very first check. Um, gosh, pre pre YC, actually this company ended up going through Y Combinator for strategic reasons. So we wrote them yeah. their very first check. Two hundred thousand um, dollars, and away they go. They've now raised oh, upwards of forty million dollars. Now, um, when you uh, when you made these decisions to invest in this young founder, how did they find you, or how did you find them? Yeah, I mean that's part of what we do here is try to make sure we're approachable by founders. So diamonds in the rough everywhere, uh, including on this call. So this particular one came through another founder that we had a relationship with. Um, he was in a, a space tech referral. company and said, hey, yeah, through a referral. And that's the best um, referral, whether it be a, another VC, a later stage VC. We see a lot of really good deal flow from later stages. Yeah, this, this whole industry works in referrals. There's no question. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons we started One Million by One Million is that, you know, there it's it's very uh, difficult if you're an outsider to break into this industry. And so, so for us, it's been great because we often have these first-time founders. We, have, we work primarily, actually, with first-time founders, not exclusively, but primarily with first-time founders. Okay. And, um, you know, in, if, the, if the project is at a certain stage and we consider it fundable, then you know, in, in half an hour, I can provide 25 introductions that are relevant to that company. We work with hundreds of investors, and and, and they will take, they will look at what what I send them, whereas they, these people cannot get to those people, those investors by themselves. And that's that's part of what bothered me very much is that there are very interesting first-time entrepreneurs out there. In fact, all these, you know, big success stories like Zuckerberg and so forth are all first-time entrepreneurs, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting. We talk a lot about that as we have matured as a firm into our third fund now. Um, we've backed a lot of first-time founders along the way, and we definitely notice a difference between first and second, and that all that does for us is mean we know what we need to focus on with the first-time founders. Um, it's, it's slightly different. Um, it's about the reception of the information, too, um, and so we notice a difference, and we've adjusted our, our game and appreciation for first versus second time founders. Yeah. Well, but in, in the enterprise, though, as you said uh, earlier on, there are a lot of very good repeat entrepreneurs, people who have mm -hmm. already had exits and, and sold in, in the enterprise. They have great domain knowledge. They, they come back in with a you know, really strong uh, proposition. And, and that category gets a tremendous amount of investment because they have the investor relationships also who fund them again and again. So uh, yeah. let's do another maybe couple of case studies of what you've invested in just to get a flavor of the kinds of sure. companies you're Sure. One area for us that we really like are, are B2B or enterprise market networks, which is an evolution of the marketplace, um, a SaaS-enabled market network. And I think our firm's formed in 2009. It's Fast forward 10 years, it's not enough to necessarily either just open a marketplace and say, hey, we're a marketplace, we're open for business, because most likely you're not the first one in your vertical, you're not the first one in your industry, and it's too noisy out there. 
simultaneously, it's almost not enough to just have a straight software product. So many of the things that have been built, the tools are out there, and if they are, they, they may not be a venture scale, billion, size, billion dollar returns. I know we're gonna talk about that later. Um, and so what's interesting for us is where we get to a SaaS enabled marketplace. And so we have a couple examples in the portfolio, um, and I, I'm gonna highlight two because they're kind of different in how that SaaS ignites the marketplace. Um, the first one is a company called Building Connected. Um, we, ex we exited it last year. It was a construction software company mm -hmm. where the, the software was designed for general contractors to support their bidding process. And so mm -hmm. I, coming out of real estate and real estate development, knew this, knew this problem well. We would send a yeah. project out to bid, and if something came back with a, an update from the city where we had to tweak a, a, tweak a plan, we had to manually go send it out to the whatever number of subcontractors that, we, yeah. that were bidding on the job. The building connected software enabled that element of the process. Good piece of software, but what really made it exciting was the natural network that it activated. So you have these general contractors that are using it and posting jobs, or not necessarily posting jobs for a bid at the start, but saying, hey, contractor, if you want to bid, come, come to the site and use this. So the subs would come on, and then eventually we got to a point where that sub would come on and then could look at other posted jobs. And so while it didn't start as a, as a job posting board or a work posting board that's what it could become because you had this natural network effect of the software driving other users to a particular place and so building connect was so a really interesting one revenue and marketplace transaction revenue the company exited right as we were turning on marketplace transactions but that is that is the goal and this next one i'm going to talk about had that as well um, a marketplace in the chemicals industry called node with a k k-n-o-w-d-e Instead of having a software product, like a SaaS tool, it had a, a storefront tool for chemical producers to then sell their wares. The chemical industry is very, um, very stagnant, the kind of old school, and there's not a lot of online e-commerce. And so that upfront yeah. software product, rather than being a workflow tool, was, a, was an e-commerce storefront that enabled transactions and then just recently started turning on the marketplace. So you can monetize the tool and potentially the network or the marketplace downstream. And the saying goes, yeah. you either come for the network and stay for the tool, or you come for the tool and stay for the network. But in either case, if the founder just tried to open up a, a marketplace and say, hey, we're chemicals marketplace, come, come to us, no one's gonna come. It's too, even in this case, even though there aren't many, no one's gonna pay a service fee for relationships yeah. they already have. And so Node and Building Connected are, are strong examples of our market network thesis. Very interesting. Now, I have a, a question that comes to my mind based on your uh, exiting of the uh, construction marketplace. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is something I'm seeing in, in small fund investment strategies, portfolio strategies, is that not everybody is playing for this unicorn, you know, trying to build unicorns, billion-dollar companies, and staying through the whole, you know, timeline of that. Uh, especially early, small early funds, are, early stage funds are often actually following the strategy of very capital efficient business building and then exiting out early. Um, mm -hmm. Sounds like that is something you are doing? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we have a metric we track internally here called enterprise value to return the fund. It's simple math. Mm -hmm. It's a $40 million fund divided by our percentage ownership, called 10% equals 400 million. And so we target an EV to return the fund of sub 400 million. 
which means that we have to own more than 10% upon exit. Mm-hmm. Very, you know, very few companies make it to the billion dollar mark. We hear about every single one, um, but there's a 99.9% that don't. And so for our business model, there's a couple of business models in, in seed and pre-seed investing. Ours is having a concentrated portfolio approach where if and when we do get that billion dollar outcome, it's going to return the fund three or four times. What we can't do is have our one amazing shot on goal that goes to a billion only return half the fund. That's not a winning business model. So for us, mm-hmm. we really focus on this EV to return the fund, which is a which is a proxy of ownership, which for us means going early with conviction into these founders, not writing $50,000 checks, but writing $500,000 checks. And so um, we price our investments to be able to return the fund with quote unquote modest exits. Now that, that has to be several hundred million, um, but that's how we think about it. So what's um, happened in the exit of the construction marketplace, SaaS enabled marketplace, who acquired the company? And could you talk a bit more about that uh, scenario? How much money has yeah, the company You bet. Um, so we were getting to the point, we talk about going all the way and building connected was at an inflection point where it either needed to go all the way become a standalone billion dollar business, um, go public or get, get bought for billion, or it had an opportunity to exit. And the company had created optionality for itself. It had term sheets to raise $50 million, um, or it created a stocking horse with both Procore and Autodesk, who was the eventual acquirer, to come buy it. And so I think creating that optionality was key so the founders could look at, okay, if I take the 50 million and go try to go all the way, here's my ownership, here's the numbers I have to get to, versus optionality on this exit, which was at a really attractive multiple at the time, um, maybe 30x, 30x revenue. Of course, fast forward a year and it's 15x revenue because the company was doubling and was turning, on, was turning on marketplace. And so the founders looked at it and said, there's a risk element to us trying to go all the way. Certainly the, there's upside there and it could be higher, but they took, the, they took the earlier exit. We never got to that marketplace transaction or the, or the network transaction, um, but Autodesk felt that it fit perfectly in their suite of tools. Mm-hmm. And how much money had gone into the company at the point of exit? Um, I think I can actually check this for you. I think probably around 40, 60 million. My record. 60 million. Oh, so that was 60, not a capital efficient situation. Okay, got it. And no, they had raised a series B. They had gone, so we did a pre seed. That was actually a seed round. Um, and then they raised a series A. And then extension, a little extension of the Series A, and then a Series B. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. So, um, question about real estate, since that's a background you sure. have, and I'm sure you, your yeah. that background informs your investment strategy. Uh, what do you see happening, given that we are going through this tremendous work from home? trend at the moment, habits forming trends, people and habits that mm-hmm. people love actually. I was talking to a friend um, yesterday. Uh, this is a couple that lives in Fremont and works on the other side of the peninsula in Redwood City and Belmont. And they have, you know, in normal times they've been commuting three hours every day and mm-hmm. uh, and now they're working from home and it's added such such great quality of life to their um, situation. And uh, so and this is true about at scale, this is true at scale. So what do you see? Yeah, it's interesting, right? I'm certainly old school. Um, I, here I am in the office, uh, it's my sanctuary. I am much more productive at the office. Um, but there are certainly scenarios where working from home makes more sense, whether it's a commute, 
whether it's the nature of the work that you do. Um, I, I was I was commenting to Maureen before we started here that San Francisco's done a very good job of this whole pandemic. And I think, yeah. A, we're, we're obviously tech forward and had the tools and the and experience working from home. Yes, we're rule followers Amazing. as well. But I think, but the nature of a lot of the work we do here lends itself to that. And so San Francisco made a very easy transition to it. And as a result, the, the, um, the health of the city has been much better. And so it's certainly gonna stay. The question is how much? We've all gone from zero to 100% this work from home and what percent remains? Um, there are certain studies over time and, and anthropo in anthropology that show that maybe five or 10% of the habits that form during these times stick. So that's probably my assessment. Um, but again, I'm old school. I like the office. I have to meet entrepreneurs in person. That's a really important thing. It'll be interesting to see when we do our next, make our next investment, it will be one where we didn't meet the entrepreneur in person. And so just a little test for ourselves. We're trying to figure it out, but, um, I'm hearing it, it, um, people, it's going to change. I'm hearing senior people in commercial real estate firms saying, "Oh, this is the end of commercial real estate," and and they're really panicking. Yep, that's for sure. I mean, that's what my family does in um, in Idaho, where I'm from, and it's a concern. I mean, there's restaurants and there's gathering places, and look, we're still human beings, and we've been gathering for hundreds of thousands of years, and I don't think that's going to stop overnight. Um, but rather than asking why should we do this on a Zoom, it's going to be why should we do this in person in the default. That may be the biggest switch is, you know, if if it's a gathering to watch a football game, that's one thing. Um, but if it's a meeting, I think the default may be to a Zoom and then um, asking why we, why we should be doing it in person. Or eating at home. You know, you go, if you mm -hmm. want to meet friends, if it's just a, you know, let's say, in something that is very much a part of the Bay Area's social habit is, you know, meeting one-on-one -on -one or two-on-two, -on -two, meet at home, you know, cook something and meet at home. I think cooking at home is a habit that is starting, that has really taken off. For sure. I'm laughing because I'm not the cook at home, but we have two little babies. And so, of course, we've been cooking at home for the last couple of years. And what we would do is host a dinner party because then we can put the girls down and then hang out with our friends. And so, we, we have been doing that a lot in the last couple of years. And I think that's gonna stay. And I think that the nature of that gathering, whether you're gathered around the kitchen, have a formal sit down at a dining room table, if we have space, which a lot of us don't in the city, or, or yeah. sitting around a coffee table in the living room, um, that the nature of those things are gonna change, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, I think that's something actually we do a lot in, in normal life. We do a lot of cooking and entertaining at home. and. Um, we kind of like that over restaurants. We like restaurants, but it's it's the Silicon Valley area. San Francisco is different. Yeah. We, I live in Menlo Park. Silicon Valley doesn't have that many great restaurants. It has a lot of right. very expensive, mediocre restaurants, and and we don't. Realize, <laughs> we are very good cooks, so we much prefer. Yeah, now. great. Now doing the dishes is another thing. If you you know you'll drive yourself crazy having to do them every every day. But, um, yeah. Then I think that's right. Interesting, you know, it's a. Uh, it's all going to evolve to some place of uh, stability, but at the moment, the world is really falling apart. And uh, yeah, or maybe it's already falling apart. Now we're maybe now we're putting it back together. Well, the second wave, third wave seems very precarious, actually. Mm-hmm. That's right. All right. Well, wonderful conversation. 